0: Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to today's uh, Cato Institute Capitol Hill briefing, uh, updating ECPA and Electronic Privacy Law for the 21st Century. I'm Kurt Couchman, Manager of Government Affairs at the Cato Institute. I'd like to start out by uh, warmly thanking uh, Chairman Leahy and the Judiciary Committee staff for graciously making the space available for us to discuss these important issues today. Um, if you aren't already familiar with the Cato Institute, it's a nonprofit public policy research foundation that is dedicated to increasing the understanding of public policies based on the principles of limited government, free markets, individual liberty, and peace. A truly nonpartisan organization, some Cato scholarship receives a better reception from the left, some from the right, and some from elements within both. But the issue before us today is one that should have broad appeal. Electronic communications technology has qu- changed quite a bit since I was in elementary school, and we're here today to talk about why and how to update the 1986 Electronic Communications Privacy Act. After our panelists provide their remarks, we'll move into some Q&A. Our first speaker today is Julian Sanchez. He is a research fellow at the Cato Institute. He focuses primarily on, at, on issues at the intersection of technology, privacy, civil liberties, and new media, but also writes about political philosophy and social psychology. Before joining Cato, Sanchez served as the Washington editor for the technology uh, news site Ars Technica, where he covered surveillance, intellectual property, and telecom policy. Prior to that, he was an assistant editor for Reason Magazine, where he remains a contributing editor. Sanchez studied philosophy and political science at New York University. Julian Sanchez.
1: Thanks, Greg. so yeah, I want to walk you through my morning, not, not I take the podium. Oh, is it if you want to do it here this work from here. Um so, yeah, I, I wanna sort of walk you through my morning, not because there's anything that interesting about my morning, um, but because it's probably not that different from yours. Right. So I you know wake up to morning edition, uh, put a put a kettle on for coffee, um, and re- go to check the morning news feed, realize I need milk and eggs, I run to the corner deli, pay with a bank card, come back, make breakfast, and I'm reading my morning news feeds. Um, you know, sort of what 20 years ago would have meant flipping through the morning papers, but now I do it in my RSS reader, Um, and I start checking my email. Uh, My email here means both my work email, so the exchange server to the Cato Institute email, but then also my personal server email uh, to which my Gmail email is forwarded. Um, These are all just sort of in the same box, though, so I'm reading them all at home. Um, I start answering one of them, but I want to jump in the shower, so I hit save, save it to the server as a draft, and also a copy on my own, hard drive, take a shower, run back, trade some IMs with an editor about a piece I'm writing, finish the email, send that. Um, and then of course the alert I'd set to um, remind me that I had to come here and be on this panel. Um, I'd set this alert in my, in my Google Calendar from the office, but that's synced up to my phone and my desktop at home. So that starts beeping and I realized I'd better finish editing my notes for this panel. Um, so I saved those to my Dropbox which means they're synced again to my pads, so I can read them here uh, and remind myself what I want to tell you. Um, Run out, get a cab, and just in case there's a rookie cabbie, I check my phone's GPS to remind myself what the shortest route to this hearing room is. Um, So none of this is particularly remarkable, but what's semi-remarkable about it compared to the equivalent activities 20 or 30 years ago is that almost every aspect of that, except God willing the shower, left a trace on some kind of third-party computer that's not under my control. And you multiply that morning by a few dozen or a few hundred mornings, someone with access to that data, certainly someone with the ability to aggregate and analyze that data and compare it to data about other people, could compile an incredibly intimate portrait of almost every aspect of my daily life. What I read, where I am, who I'm with, who I talk to. And you might think that all of that is at least protected from government collection by the Fourth Amendment. The Fourth Amendment requirement that uh, a search warrant uh, you know, supported by probable cause to believe that evidence of a crime will be found. Um, before they can start digging through my records through this incredibly detailed digital biography of me. Um, unfortunately, you'd be wrong. Um, most of that activity uh, enjoys either unclear or no Fourth Amendment protection because of a 1979 case uh, called Smith v. Maryland. Uh, and the, the problem is that, as, as you, you know probably this phrase is familiar, the Fourth Amendment protects the reasonable expectation of privacy that people enjoy. And the problem is that Uh, because of a conception of privacy that uh, legal scholar Dan Solove has called the secrecy paradigm, the court found in that case that information conveyed to a third party. In this case, it was the signaling information for uh, telephone records, right? Who who had I called? Who had called me? That information, because it had been conveyed to someone else, in this case, the phone company, which kept that information for their uh, billing records, um, I had lost my reasonable expectation of privacy in it. It had been exposed to the world as far as the court was concerned. Um, What's important to remember about this decision, this is only a few years out from when making a phone call, certainly a phone call across state lines, typically involved actually talking to an operator and telling her or him what number you wanted to be connected to. Um, So as a result, uh, it's at at the most very unclear what kind of protection all that data not just the email messages and the IMs sitting on a server, but all the metadata, all the transactional data that's generated in the process of sending and receiving those messages. Now, fortunately, Congress did try to address this unclarity by passing in 1986 um, the Electronic Communications Privacy Act. Um, as you may have noticed, though, technology has changed a bit since 1986. Um, and the the categories of the statute don't very well track both the technology we actually use now and the expectations ordinary people have about the level of protection that their communications are going to enjoy. This is a problem for users who don't know how well protected their information is, but I think also for the companies that store that information because the ECFA statute is so incredibly convoluted and complex. Even in the eyes of scholars who study it for a living, just let me give you a, a sort of quick um, sense of, of how the categories of the statute work. So suppose the government thinks I'm up to something shady and wants to get a hold of the email that I sent this morning. So how do they do that? Well, obviously if they want to come and read the copy that's stored in my home computer, they want to come into my home, um, they need a search warrant. So a search warrant supported by probable cause describing the place to be searched and the person or things to be seized, they come in, make a copy, uh, that moves with it. If they want to look at the draft that I saved, though, under ECPA, the email server that's holding that draft, which hasn't yet been sent, is a remote computing service provider. Uh, so as a remote computing service provider, uh, that means that, the, that basically that can be obtained um, with a, a subpoena um, or a, what's called a 2703D court order. The standard for that isn't probable cause, but, but rather specific and articulable facts to believe that the information would be relevant material to an investigation. It's a much lower standard. They don't even have to be interested necessarily in what I'm doing. They just have to think my communications would tell them something relevant. So, the ISP is a remote computing service provider with respect to that stored draft email. Then, I send the draft email. Um, travels over the wire, suddenly not covered by the Electronic Communications Privacy Act, but covered by the Wiretap Act. The communication in transit on the wire, if they want to pick it up live off the wire, actually now requires more than a search warrant. It requires what some scholars call um, a Wiretap Act super warrant, It has additional requirements of showing that they have to make. that They've exhausted other methods before they use this intrusive method of a wiretap. Ah, then it lands on the server of the person to whom I've sent it. Now, that person's ISP, is uh, an electronic communications service provider, not a remote computing service provider, with respect to that email, which means, once again, to read it before it's opened, uh, while it's in this temporary electronic storage, they need a search warrant, regular search warrant. Then someone opens the email. Well, once it's opened, once again, the email stored on that, other, on that foreign server um, is being held by a remote computing service provider. By opening it, they suddenly were transformed into something else. Um, unless you're in the Ninth Circuit... The Ninth Circuit has interpreted this in a different way, where it's uh, where where, so once again a search warrant is required even if it's been opened until it expires in the normal course. I have no idea what that means, and I you know work on this stuff for a living. Um, If you do, give me a hint. I'm not sure anywhere else. Again, the lower standard applies again once they've opened the email, or if it sits there for more than 180 days. That's all assuming that these are all service providers to the public. If, however, I'm reading my work email, I may not even know whether I'm reading my work email um, because it's all in one box, then they're able to voluntarily disclose without these compulsory processes, essentially, any of this they want when, when the government comes asking. Um, so, uh, to put it mildly, the standards are unclear and inconsistent. Um, I think intuitively, what most people would say is that The information about the the contents of the communications that you're sending should be treated in a consistent way, whether they're on your home, on a server, uh, you know, transiting on a wire. It really shouldn't matter, Um, but the way the statute is set up, these seemingly trivial distinctions in where a document is stored or whether it's been opened can influence, you know, to an enormous degree, what standard of evidence applies. Um, I think there's a similar trouble with location. Remember, I I mentioned as I I went away here, I checked my phone GPS. And there's actually no clear statutory guidance about what the government has to do if they want to find out where I am, either at this instant or where I've been as my phone checks in uh, when I make a phone call or just move around the city. Different courts have decided different things. There's a 1995 statute called CALIA that says they can't just use a pen register. That's the device they use to get that to from transaction data to get location information. But it doesn't say what they can use. So, depending on whether the uh, information they're looking for about my location is prospective or retrospective, um, and how detailed it is, do they just want a kind of general area or very precise GPS? Different government agencies have at different times tried and sometimes succeeded to get that information using a pen register plus that 2703D order, that's specific and articulable facts, or uh, a pen register plus what's called the All-Writs Act, or the court just basically sort of uh, uses its intrinsic authority, or uh, a search warrant, but a regular search warrant, not one of those super warrants we mentioned earlier. Again, this inconsistency leaves both individuals and uh, companies like Google, uh, radically unclear about what level of protection applies. Um, and at the end of the day, it just doesn't make that much sense. Um, there's a similar problem with transactional data. That transactional data is um, sort of essentially unprotected. It gets, um, again, the 2703D orders are sufficient to get most of it. There's, in a separate national security context, the standard is actually even lower, although uh, we're, we're not dealing with that here today. Um, And we're dealing with rules that the court created at a time when third party records of metadata about everyone's daily activities, what they were reading, where they were going, was the exception rather than the rule. Where the indefinite storage of records of that transactional information was the exception rather than the rule. Recall that in 1986, a megabyte of storage space cost about $100 each. Um, that's in sort of 1986 dollars. It's closer to 180 in current dollars. Now, I think the price of a gigabyte is at about a dollar for consumers and falling. Um, so that's, I mean, so what we're talking about here is a 10,000, 100,000 fold draw, increase in storage capacity at the same price point. What that means is it's now typically cheaper to save stuff than delete it. Uh, Both the transactional data and the contents themselves are now usually stored on someone else's computer indefinitely for 180 days, often much more, in a way that the statute didn't anticipate. there's also, I mean, there's also a change in the way we're using this technology right? in ways that the statute didn't necessarily anticipate. Most of us now are on one kind or another of social network sites. Um, these are again pretty intimate drafts of the kinds of groups we're members of. And there's a separate line of Supreme Court cases involving membership lists, this comes out of a, a dispute involving a statute that required the NAACP to make their membership list public. And there's a First Amendment interest ordinary people in the different kinds of groups they're members of, especially if the groups have some kind of politically controversial nature. Um, but also, you know, when we consider that more and more people um, are in effect acting as members of the press in an informal way by blogging or even just tweeting. Um, the people they're in contact with are often people they're interviewing uh, or, or discussing things with for future publication as we all should become journalists. Um, and so, again, that mere addressing information, which is much more detailed because, you know, again, the address here now isn't just a phone number, but usually much more identifying. Uh, the addressing information for communications with websites often contain pretty specific information about what we're reading and writing. Um, and so as vastly more useful information for law enforcement has become easily accessible, Um, Essentially, law enforcement has has sought the path of least resistance. And so we've seen an enormous uptick in requests for these kinds of relatively less regulated user information. Uh, And reporting on this kind of request is very spotty. But we do know, uh, thanks to actually a a smart researcher who's in the room, that, um, for example, Sprint alone, processed via a kind of plug-and-play surveillance platform for law enforcement designed to make it quick and easy, um, something like 8 million discrete pings for geolocation information in the past year alone. We know that um, Verizon has at least claimed that they get from law enforcement at all levels tens of thousands of requests for user information. And again, that information now essentially is a full-scale digital biography. Um, and yet, as this information explosion has happened, we're operating under rules uh, you know, made for a time when The only computer you used, if you had one, was like this kind of clunky box on a desk um, that would, 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 you know, a fairly limited portion of your daily communications. As more and more of our interactions have moved online, more and more are in this unregulated space. And so to both protect privacy and to provide clarity for the telecoms that are trying to innovate um, by providing new ways to use these platforms, I think we need to uh, seriously consider a major overhaul of this now 25-year-old law. And I know that uh, Will and uh, Greg are going to go into some detail about what kind of changes might be appropriate.
2: Uh, thanks, Julian. I'm taking take your lead and actually start from here. And at the end, I'm going to demo a couple of things uh, using our I'm AV to, equipment. Uh,
0: introduce you first.
2: Uh, oh, please do. Thank
0: you. All right. Uh, Will DeVries is our next speaker. He is a policy counsel for Google, where he focuses on privacy and consumer protection. In that role, Will works on regulatory and legislative issues ranging from social networking to online advertising to government access to records. He also teaches e-commerce law at the George Washington University Law School. Prior to Google, Will worked in the communications, privacy, and information law group at Wilmer Hale LLP. Will is a graduate of Princeton University and the University of California Berkeley School of Law. Will DeVries. Uh,
2: thanks so much, and thanks to Cato for pulling this together, and thanks for Uh, All the work that staff is doing, both here in the Senate and in the House, uh, to move this issue forward, including making space available for us today. Um, I actually see a lot of people who I've talked to already who are invested in this effort, um, and I'm really (laughs) excited to see it moving forward. Um, Google is definitely a proud member of the coalition, the Digital Due Process Coalition. Greg will speak more to what that coalition has been up to. It's been led by CDT. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit about, first, get into some of the changes in technology that Julian discussed and specifically how Google sees some of these changes in our products, and then also talk a little bit about the problems that the the, the outdated rules in ECPA present for Google on an operational basis. Um, And uh, as I said, I'm going to uh, show you a couple of things to you know, break up the monotony a little bit, um, and I'll hold off on that to the end because I've got to connect all the AV equipment at the end, um, and that will segue perfectly into Greg's speech, because so we'll have a little video about digital to process. Um, so first, let's talk about technology. And a stat that really gets to me, and this is uh, similar to what Julian was talking about, the stat that really gets me is uh, in 1986, a 10 megabyte hard drive uh, cost about 650 dollars, and that would store about two high-resolution photos. Uh, Now you can go out and buy for $99 a 1.5 terabyte hard drive, and that would store about 300,000 photos. Um, That same exponential change is reflected also in processing. It's reflected in transfer rates. Uh, It really has revolutionized uh, our expectation of of how we interact with data, what data we should uh, have available to us, and how we produce data. Um, And let's be clear that While this poses some risks that we're talking about here in terms of privacy, it's also delivered enormous value for all of us. And we're not looking back. Uh, I think we're actually moving forward. And and these trends are only going to continue. We've seen enormous benefits to all of us from this increases in processing and data transfer and data storage. Uh, So let me take a look at three services Google offers and and really show you how they don't map well to to where ECPA was when it was drafted in the technology in 1986. We offer a webmail service called Gmail. Uh, It's got tens of millions of users. It's um, one of the first Google products I really fell in love with. Um, I started using it back in 2004. And and since I've started using it, I've actually only used 15% of my storage allotment of seven gigabytes and and growing. Um, And I've never deleted, uh, with the exception of some spam, I've never deleted a single email. And that's the point of Gmail. Never delete. Archive everything. Have a searchable index of your email that you can access from anywhere for any purpose you want forever. Um, and uh, you know, there's been a sea change in the way that we see email. Now, the thing is, at least email existed in 1986. We have other products that really have no, uh, have no parallel at all to the technology that existed then. Take Latitude. Latitude is a location-sharing service. It's available. Um, people walk around with their mobile phones, and my colleagues are annoyed that I still carry around uh, the Apple device, but I love my iPhone. And uh, I have latitude on it, and I can share my location with my friends, and my friends can share their location with me uh, in a private network. Um, It shows where I am at any given time uh, at a level of specificity I want. Um, Compare this to 1986, where 340,000 people in the entire United States had anything resembling a mobile uh, communications device, and that was for voice communications on analog. None, single one of those people could send a text message, let alone access any kind of uh, internet service. Um, also, I, I wanted to, to, to focus on Docs. Docs is our online word processing system. Again, word processing existed. I don't know if any of you were using word processing systems in 1986, but you know you probably had your IBM 286 or something along those lines, uh, and. You could write up a a document and print it out. It was stored on your home computer. Docs is a completely cloud-based word processing system. Uh, It allows you to collaboratively, uh, in real time, work on documents with other people uh, located anywhere else in the world as long as you have an Internet connection. Um, This bears very little resemblance to... The closest analogy would be a remote computing service in ECPA, but this is not what remote computing service was at the time. I think Julian spoke to that a little bit, but we were talking in 1986 about batch business processing of the kind that large entities would need to do because they couldn't afford to have the Cray computer or whatever it was that could chunk that through that amount of data. They couldn't afford to have that in-house, and they would outsource it. Um, This looks nothing like that. The documents exist only in the cloud. People rarely download them, if ever, and they access them from anywhere and use them with multiple users in an environment that they consider private. Um, keep, Keep the idea that um, docs is only in the remote system that it can be accessed and edited over time. I'm going to return to that and talking about some of the problems that we face when interpreting ECPA. Um, so how does Google look at ECPA and what problems would he face? So I, I think basically we sum it up by saying ECPA is difficult to explain to our users and it's difficult for us to apply. Um, and this confusion and the cost associated with it really, for us, is undermining the growth of our services and the growth of the cloud, um, uh, cloud services, internet services. And, and we're really concerned about that. Um, our, our users, when when they look at ECBA, if they, if they take a look at the, the procedural steps that Julian walked through uh, in, that are uh, in ECBA's language, um, they don't understand them. They don't make sense. I don't think they reflect their reasonable expectation of privacy. I think uh, if you ask almost any Internet user, they would say that the email that they use is just as private to them as their communications on a phone or the postage mail that they send uh, or a conversation that they have in person. Um, you know, some have asked why is there then no major outcry. I think the reason is most users don't understand this, and I think they don't know what the rules are, and they don't understand that there's a different procedural level depending on uh, what service they're using and how they're using it. Um, But this is actually a very common complaint amongst our enterprise customers. We hear this a lot. People say, well, uh, we're interested in moving to the cloud, we're not sure how this is going to to work with when you get a request for our records from you know some compelled records, whether in civil litigation, in criminal litigation, or in some other way, means. How are you going to deal that? Tell us. And we walk them through. We explain to them. And many of them, even sophisticated business customers, don't know what the standards are for for access to their records. Um, take for example uh, a, a news publishing company. Um, there still are some around. And, and you know, news publishing companies have uh, an enormous amount of interest in protecting their sources, for instance, and, and their in their private communications. And when they host those on their own servers under their own control, they know that if they get a request that they don't feel respects their First Amendment rights, that's compliant with the law that, as they view it, they can go to their counsel, they can they can contest that, they can negotiate that with the government officials on their own. When a provider, an outside provider, has that information. Uh, they're going to have to trust what we're going to be doing with their data as opposed to themselves and and not only trust what we're doing with the data but trust that the standards in ECPA which would be lower than the standards that they would deal with for their own information are going to satisfy their needs Uh, and that's a big issue for us and and we've seen it from our customers and we know that other members of the Digital Due Process Coalition um, have complained about similar problems when they try to grow their own cloud services Uh, part of Uh, This problem is is part of why we developed our government request transparency tool. I'm going to demo that in in just a minute. Um, But we are trying to bring some uh, clarity to a a process that has not had very much clarity in the past. So we think that this is really going to move the ball forward to say uh, to users, not just in the United States but worldwide, here's what Google is doing when we interact uh, with governments who are requesting information about you or from you. And uh, you should see that. You should have some clarity into that. We hope other companies will follow suit. And, and that way you can actually have an educated dialogue on this. And I think until that happens, it's really going to be a struggle to explain people what the need is for a change in the law. So the second part of the problem that we face with ECPA is the fact that it is uh, murky and difficult for Google to apply, holding aside any civil liberties concern of any kind. It's simply a cost burden for us to figure out how to comply with it, what the standards are, whether a request is valid or not. Um, and the confusion that comes out of this breeds both waste and risk. It breeds waste in, in the resources uh, that we have to spend interpreting it, that the resources that law enforcement and others have to spend uh, trying to convince us about their, their, their interpretation of the standards. And it provides risk to us that we might get it wrong, a risk to law enforcement that they might have the wrong interpretation. Um, and I want to first point out here that almost all of the requests that we get from law enforcement are absolutely valid. And not only valid, but, but extremely important in tracking down really bad actors. Uh, just as we've moved our lives online, uh, criminals have moved online as well. And uh, 99.9% or, or more of the interactions that we have in law enforcement are, are uh, fit that mold, and we are happy to be a partner with law enforcement in doing that, and we want to continue that. Uh, we feel like we've had good interactions, so we want to continue them, and that's at all levels, from not only from the federal level, but all the way down to, to local law enforcement as well. Um, but ensuring that we get the answers right in complying with these processes, and, and when you see the government request, you'll see some of the numbers we're talking about, it, it requires us to have a dedicated expert team that does nothing except for receive, process, and interpret these requests to ensure that they are valid, to make sure that they comport with our view of the letter and the spirit of the law. And sometimes it's a hard call. Um, Sometimes we differ with law enforcement's view. Uh, Take docs as an example. I don't think uh, any court has ruled on the issue of what happens when you have uh, a doc in the cloud uh, that is edited uh, over time. So you have a 180-day rule where, for instance, under for a communication would drop from uh, a warrant standard to a lower standard. A warrant, actually, that, that's even a contested aspect of the law. It would drop from a down to a subpoena a standard after 180 days. Under a, a theory, I think Greg will explain a little bit about. Uh, how we would change that aspect but it would drop down to a subpoena standard for access to email older than uh, communications older than six months but if you have a document that's edited in real time over time how do you declare what that date is um, is it the date that the document was uploaded is it the last edit date is it the last viewed date and speaking of which how do you d- figure out when it was last viewed uh, because under the doj's interpretation of ECPA. The, the time at which a communication was viewed changes its procedural, uh, the procedural access standard. Um, DOCS presents really tough problems, and uh, you know, these are problems I think that uh, we want to work through uh, with law enforcement when we have them, but we would like some clarity to the law so we know how to exactly deal with this. Holding aside any civil liberties issue, we just want to know what standard we need to apply when we have a request for this information. I want to point one example um, that actually brings this into some clear light. Yahoo recently faced a request right along these lines. They, were, they had a request uh, f- uh, from the DOJ for uh, email of subscribers that was uh, less than 180 days old but had been viewed by the recipient of the email. And they uh, uh, used less than a warrant standard to request that information, and Yahoo contested that in court. And, and it actually, in an amicus brief, Uh, joined by both CDT and by Google and and many of the other members of the Digital Due Process Coalition, uh, we suggested that 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 was actually not a proper reading of ECPA and not a proper reading of the Fourth Amendment as well. Uh, The DOJ retracted their request um, and uh, has sought other means to get the same information. Um, And while we think that's the right outcome in that case, it took over a year. It involved lots of lawyers. It involved lots of time. It was the time of the providers. It was the time of, of... DHA prosecutors and officials that could be better served going after bad guys. It could also took the court's time. Um, that's time that we'd rather have and resources that we would rather have spending on doing the actual work of all of our parties. Um, you know, and part, part of that interpretation was whether the Ninth Circuit interpretation of uh, what an what a email and electronic storage is, what, whether that should be applied uh, more broadly. Uh, and that's an interesting question, you know, and, and I think the Ninth Circuit got to the right answer there, but I don't think even Judge Kaczynski could tell you what um, expires in the normal course actually means. Uh, it's a question if we ever get a chance to ask him, I'd like to ask him. So not only are these disputes a waste of, of provider and law enforcement and court research, they're also very risky. Um, if a provider grants access under uh, what turns out to be an improper view of the statute. They face litigation and potential penalties. Um, if it denies a request that it should grant, um, it could not only uh, poison the relationship with law enforcement, but it could let uh, a criminal perhaps uh, escape or, or uh, impede an investigation. None of those outcomes are ideal, and we want a solution that's going to be allowed allowed. Uh, a a more clear and consistent interpretation of ECBA. Now, if you please forgive me, I'm going to set up here and show you um, a a, a quick video that um, I think introduces ECBA and transitions right into Greg's talk. You can introduce Greg behind.
0: While he's setting up here, let me just go ahead and introduce Greg uh, so that we can jump right into it. Uh, Greg Nojime is a senior counsel at the Center for Democracy and Technology and the director of its Project on Freedom, Security, and Technology. CDT is a Washington-based nonprofit organization dedicated to promoting democratic values and constitutional liberties in the digital age. In this capacity, Mr. Nojime conducts much of CDT's work in the areas of national security, terrorism, and Fourth Amendment protections, and works to limit the threat to privacy posed by government wiretapping and monitoring of Internet communications. Other areas of his expertise include government data mining, the Patriot Act, the State Secrets Privilege, and the privacy implications of aviation security measures. Nojime is also co-chair of the Coordinating Committee on National Security and Civil Liberties of the Individual Rights and Responsibilities Section of the American Bar Association. Prior to joining CDT in May 2007, Mr. Nojime worked at the American Civil Liberties Union for 12 years, where he analyzed the civil liberties implications of federal legislation relating to terrorism, national security, immigration, and information policy. He studied political science at the University of Rochester and earned his JD from the University of Virginia. Back to you.
2: The internet it is a cloud service I would point out <laughs>
0: Alrighty.
2: well we'll, we'll, uh, well why don't we leave it there and use the vagaries of the internet uh, yes is...
3: um, thanks much I, I really love that video it's it's a lot of fun the guy with the phone uh, what he's showing is What cell phones used to look like. They looked like bricks. They weighed like bricks, and not many people had one um, back in 1986. Um, So my position on this panel following um, Julian and Will, um, you know, Julian kind of made the case that ECPA doesn't make a lot of sense today. Its standards are unclear and inconsistent or non-existent. And Will made the case that those problems are a big issue for companies. It's difficult for them to apply the statute. Uh, My role on the panel is to explain what could be done about it. Um, And we have been involved in a process for about three years um, to arrive at some ideas and consensus proposals for updating the Electronic Communications Privacy Act to deal with these advances in technology um, that Will and uh, Julian have talked about. Um, I'm going to describe the process that led to these proposals. I'll describe the proposals and then a way forward, what we think will happen uh, going forward. So um, we were meeting probably every other week or every week, first with a small group, um, to talk about what we thought ought to be done to ECPA and we identified at the front end about 14 different changes that we thought ought to be made. We talked about them. We tried to reach consensus on them. Some of them dropped out. Some of them got rolled into other ones. Um, Some of them were just too hard, things that we we couldn't really figure out a clean solution for. Hopefully, uh, a solution will come, Um, but we whittled, whittled it down to four proposals, and I'll talk about those later. Our Coalition Digital Due Process, you can read more about it at process, all one word,.org, um, involved uh, telecommunications companies, technology companies, privacy advocates, academics, including a number of lawyers who used to work with the computer crime section at the Department of Justice. Um, and I, I think it's fair to say that there were a lot of pulls in different directions. And I think we came up uh, um, at a good place. Um, We tackled some of the biggest issues, but not all of them. Overarching themes, a balance. We wanted to achieve a balance between privacy interests, the government's need for uh, electronic communications information to prosecute crimes. It needs those tools. And companies' need for clarity and for customer trust. One of our um, founding principles was that there should be technology and platform neutrality. It shouldn't matter whether you're working on your computer to save the document or saving it in the cloud. Um, We thought it also very important to preserve the building blocks of law enforcement investigations, a sliding scale so that law enforcement can escalate its efforts. You know, it can use a subpoena No judicial review. Subpoena is Latin for no judge has seen this, right? Uh, It can use a subpoena to get um, information that's not content, that's not particularly sensitive, information that uh, a company might store about where you live, for example. Um, It can use um, orders on a lesser standard for more sensitive information, transactional information, who you emailed and who emailed you, um, and it should be able, it should have to get a warrant probable cause for the most sensitive information for content, so we preserve those building blocks, law enforcement can escalate its efforts as it has more certainty about um, the the criminal activity uh, that 's afoot. Um, we also decided we needed to preserve the structure of the statute. I mean I think Julian made a good case that there 's a lot of issues in that structure. Um, But one of our members said repeatedly, hey, let's not boil the ocean. We're not going to be able to fix everything. We don't want to rewrite the whole thing. And um, a lot of the prosecutors, the former prosecutors involved, said, you know, we've got to worry about unintended consequences. Um, So let's do, let's preserve the structure of the statute and uh, make the changes that we need to make. Um, we also decided to avoid intelligence surveillance. FISA, it's, it was amended just last year, difficult process, needs to be fixed, problem for another time. It was, uh, uh, we excluded it from our discussions early on. And we also decided that we needed to preserve the existing exceptions in ECPA that allow for law enforcement and for companies to have flexibility in some areas. So, for example, ECPA has emergency exceptions so that law enforcement, when it's trying to prevent death or serious bodily injury, it doesn't have to get the court order ahead of time. It can go to the provider right away, get the court order later. Um, There's other exceptions about child pornography that permit um, providers to disclose child pornography that they become aware of to the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, we preserve all those um, existing ex- exceptions. Uh, simplicity and clarity; those are those were buzzwords that came about a lot, and I think I reflected in the proposals. And we said we have to have consensus, and um, we arrived at consensus uh, in uh, uh, early this year. Rolled out the proposals in late March. Um, companies on board include Google, Microsoft, eBay. Salesforce, one of the major cloud cloud computing providers for business, AOL and Intel, and more. Um, Among the advocates, we had a great left-right group, ACLU, Americans for Tax Reform, American Library Association, FreedomWorks, Consumer Action, Progress and Freedom Foundation, and more. Um, some of our members are in the room right now. I know the Constitution Project is here. Um, any other members want to stand up? And Ted Kingsley from AT&T. Kathy Sloan from CCIA. Um, thank you all for coming. And, of course, Will um, from Google. Um, at some level, the reforms that we agreed on are modest. Um, again, we didn't try to rewrite the whole statute, Let me just run through them real quick with the time I have left. Um, The first principle to which we agreed was that there should be, for law enforcement to get access to content of communications, there should be a requirement of probable cause and a warrant. A judge should have to sign off on it. Probable cause is a relatively high level of certainty that the information sought will be relevant to a a crime. And as Julian pointed out, there are strange rules today that we would do away with. This notion that the email that was so sensitive that you saved it for more than six months ought to be at a lower level of protection, we would do away with that. We would say, no, no, email is email, uh, and it ought to be protected at the probable cause level. Stored photos, those photos that you share with other people, Probable cause, again, unless you make it public. If you make it public, law enforcement doesn't need any process at all. They can read it on the Internet just like they read a newspaper. Um, The private posts that you put on Facebook, the documents that you share on Google Docs, for those things, we would say probable cause, its content. Um, This is not a new idea. In fact, it was in legislation bipartisan legislation that Senators Ashcroft and Leahy introduced in 1998. Uh, We would codify it today. Um, The second major proposal that we made was that there ought to be a search warrant based on probable cause, again, that high level of suspicion, for getting location information. And it shouldn't matter whether the location information that this phone generates and that my provider stores, it shouldn't matter whether it was based on GPS or cell site tower location because over time, the cell site tower location information is becoming more and more accurate. Um, It shouldn't matter also whether the location information is taken from storage or in real time. Both are very revealing. Uh, And in that sense, we distinguish location information from other non-content. We determined that it was more revealing and that a higher protection um, was warranted. Uh, What we're proposing is not, again, it's not brand new. It was part of the ashcroft Leahy bill from 1998, and the standard that we're proposing, at least for real-time location, was actually approved by the House Judiciary Committee in legislation in the year 2000 on a 20-to-1 vote. 20-to-1, judiciary, House. You ever hear that before? It's not that common. It's a very divided committee and has been for a long time. Um, We also made a change. We proposed a change about um, uh, the standard for what's known as pen registers and and trap-and-trace devices. Those... When they were first uh, conceived of, they were devices that recorded numbers dialed to or from a telephone. Now you can get pen trap orders for email to from information as well. And the standard for them is extremely low, extremely low. Law enforcement merely certifies that the information sought is relevant to an investigation The statute does not call on the judge to make a determination of relevance. We would change the statute to make it so that the judge decides whether the information sought is relevant and whether law enforcement has presented specific facts that show relevance. Again, this is not a super change in the standard. It really is a change that gives the judge a role in making this decision about some fairly sensitive transactional information. The fourth proposal, and it's our last one, um, would make it so that for bulk requests for transactional information, court approval is required. Right now, some bulk requests for this information, even though it's sensitive, um, can be gotten with a subpoena. No judge needs to look at it. Um, so, what we're talking about is not when law enforcement goes to the provider and says, give us. Uh, information about so-and-so, this target of our investigation. That's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about is when law enforcement goes to the provider and says, we don't have a target yet. Give us, for example, everyone who viewed this website page. Well, that is going to involve the data of a lot of innocent people for that kind of request, where there aren't specified targets, we would say a judge has to sign off on that. It's going to be a relatively low standard, relevance, and specific facts, but we want judicial approval. So where have we gone and, and um, where do we go from here? Um, I swear these proposals, they all fit on one page. They're, they're at some level simple, um, and we have briefed them to the world. Um, we've We've discussed them with um, six entities within the Department of Justice, including the National Security Division, the Computer Crime Section, the FBI, the Office of Legislative Affairs, the Office of Legal Policy. Um, We've briefed them to the Federal Trade Commission, to the Department of Commerce, to the White House. We're briefing lawyers for the intelligence community next week. There's no secret here. We want to get people's reaction We want to understand what their concerns might be, and we want to be able to respond to them. Um, There were some hearings in the House. um, To to, uh, um, the credit of Chairman Nadler, he said that this is the kickoff and we're going to have more hearings in the House. Um, Senator Leahy has indicated that he'd like to hold hearings this year in the Senate. Uh, What we envision is a process that will extend into the next session of Congress, um, where uh, we get a chance to talk about it with law enforcement. We want to do this right, and we want to um, get everybody's views uh, and avoid unintended consequences. Thank you very much.
0: Thanks, Greg. Uh, before we go to the Q&A, is there any quick comment that anyone wants to make on anyone else's presentation here? Okay, I, I
2: just thought they were great. I just wanted just to thank Greg and, and CDT for, for the lead on this work. Um, it really has been several years. I've only joined that, this part of this recently, and it's amazing how much effort and time has gone into this. Um, and building a coalition like this is, is no easy feat. Um, Any time that you have... Uh, the ACLU and AT&T and Microsoft and Google at the same table uh, agreeing on principles, then you've done uh, a heroic task. And I, I hope that as, as this proposal goes out of our hands and into the hands of, uh, of you all on the Hill um, and other uh, 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 bodies who will have a say in it, I, I hope you appreciate um, that uh, the people who come to this um, don't agree on much and we agree on this.